Comets stink. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Okay, we only know that one comet stinks, but that's probably because we haven't sniffed others, as the European Space Agency's Rosetta probe sniffed Comet 67P churyumov gerasimenko hereafter referred to as Churi. To be precise, it was an exquisitely precise instrument on Rosetta that did the smelling. Today we'll meet three members of the team that have spent years analyzing the data from that instrument called Rosina to identify a surprisingly diverse collection of complex compounds. Their findings have just been published in Nature Communications. They may tell us something about the origin of our solar system and of life itself. Bruce Betts has also caught the scent. He'll add to the cometary commentary when we reach this week's What's Up segment. The August 5 edition of The Downlink, our free weekly newsletter, celebrated the 10th anniversary of Curiosity, the Mars Science Laboratory rover on Mars. That nice selfie was taken last November. I was standing in a room with thousands of screaming fans when we got word a decade ago that she had safely touched down. That Planet Fest celebration was one of the greatest days of my life. Curiosity is still rolling, still exploring, still doing great science. NASA and ESA chose this anniversary to announce that samples of Mars, now being collected by Curiosity's sister, Perseverance, will reach Earth by 2033. You can read the details at planetary.org downlink. As you may have heard from Casey Dreyer during last week's Planetary Radio Space Policy Edition, our monthly companion podcast, the U.S. Senate's 2023 NASA budget looks good for explorers like you and me. Among other things, it restores full funding for the NEO surveyor mission. And the JWS team may have already broken its own record for detection of the oldest galaxy found so far. This one is 13.5 billion light-years from us. That's less than a quarter of a billion years after the Big Bang. Pausing for effect here. Nora Hani is a chemist and postdoctoral researcher at the Physics Institute of the University of Bern in Switzerland. She is lead author of the Nature Communications paper titled Identification and Characterization of a New Ensemble of Cometary Organic Molecules. Ensemble, that's putting it mildly, as you'll hear Nora and her team have painstakingly identified more than 70 eye-raising compounds in the coma or atmosphere that surrounded Comet Churi. The data came from that instrument called Racina. More about it later, but joining our conversation a little late was its principal investigator. University of Bern professor Catherine Altweg is an astrophysicist and the former director of the university's Center for Space and Habitability, or CSH. Professor Suzanne Wampfler is another member of the team, also an astrophysicist. Suzanne was just made interim director of the CSH. All three scientists joined me online a few hours ago. Nora and Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me on Planetary Radio. I am uh, thrilled to be able to talk to you about this paper, 
uh, that you and the rest of uh, your team recently published in Nature Communications. So uh, once again, welcome to uh, Planetary Radio. Thank you. Well, thank you for having us. My pleasure, indeed. Nora, I'm going to start with you. Let's start by going back nearly 40 years and missions that uh, set out for Comet Halley back in the, uh, the mid-1980s, including the European Space Agency's Giotto uh, spacecraft. Did that mission and the others, did they help sort of set the stage or prepare us for this mo more recent research uh, based on uh, the work by this uh, instrument on the Rosetta spacecraft? Yeah, I think very much so. This was actually the first time that a fleet of spacecrafts was flying by a comet, and it uncovered basically that this coma, so the atmosphere of this comet was much more complex than expected. So people were expecting water maybe and CO2, but apparently, especially the mass spectrometers on board, they would detect also more complex species, so heavier ones. Unfortunately, there was not the resolution. So these instruments did not have the resolution to unambiguously characterize what actually is the chemical composition of this, of this coma. So this is where everything started. And now with Rosetta, as you said, 40 years later, there actually was the opportunity to go back and send a high resolution instrument that could do the job eventually and really characterize from a chemical perspective what this coma and um, also the dust. So every all the cometary matter is made of. And we'll go into a good deal of uh, detail about how this work has uh, was accomplished by Rosetta and specifically the instrument called Rosina. We were hoping to include your colleague at the University of Bern, Catherine Altweg, but unfortunately, she is somewhere up in the Alps, I assume on holiday, and her uh, bandwidth is just not adequate to be able to join us. So Catherine, we, uh, we're sorry that you aren't able to be part of the conversation, but she is the principal investigator for Rosina, which is, this is a mouthful, Rosetta Orbiter Spectrometer for Ion and Neutral Analysis Double Focusing <laughs> Mass Spectrometer. Thank goodness we can just say Rosina. Um, tell us, how Rosina is able to do a much better job of telling us what it's finding uh, at a comet than could be done 40 years ago uh, by those missions to Comet Halley. This instrument was the first high-resolution mass spectrometer that was on a spacecraft sent to a comet. Before, mass spectrometers used to have more or less uh, unit resolution. So this means actually that it's not possible to distinguish between, say, a pure hydrocarbon species that has the same mass as a species with hydrocarbons, but also other atoms in it. This improvement actually made it possible to now separate all these different species and know the, the composition of the matter that is in this coma far more accurately. This mass spectrometer actually sniffs more or less this cometary gas that is sublimating when the comet gets closer to the sun. So the icy volatiles of, of the comet, they start to sublimate this Rosina instrument on the orbiter, which was 
um, in orbit around the comet for two years. So this is also a, a very um, different and new thing that actually was made possible by this Rosetta mission that the evolution of of a comet when it approaches the sun, passes its closest point, and then goes back out into the far solar system. So, so how this changes and how it changes while the comet rotates. So this was really the first time that it was possible to really study this in great and unprecedented detail. My understanding is that even with this enormously more powerful instrument, Rosina, there was still an enormous amount of work that had to go into sort of teasing out the signatures of all these individual uh, chemicals that, that the team was able to identify. Suzanne, I see you nodding your head. I have not done any of the data analysis because I'm not an expert on mass spectrometry. But as Nora mentioned, the, the peaks are often overlapping. They're not totally overlapping so that you cannot distinguish between the peaks, but the shoulders are often still overlapping. One has to go through great detail of calibrating first the mass scale and then also disentangling the different peaks to really go into detail of species that are not as abundant. So the abundant ones have big peaks and they're relatively easy to figure out. But then as soon as you're interested in more complex, less abundant species, you have to sort of first remove the contribution from the more abundant ones. Uh, and then you can sort of go to smaller and smaller peaks. So the inherent problem with mass spectrometry is that the molecules, the parent molecules that come from the comet, they break up or they may break up while they are being ionized in the instrument and then transferred through the instrument and collected on the detector. And this is why a lot of calibration work is actually needed. So we have to know the fragmentation patterns. We can extract some of the information from databases, like from the National Institute for Standards and Technology. But on the other hand, not all data is there. So there are molecules that may not be so stable. So people did not um, produce reference spectra in the labs already. Actually, many people have been working in the past 10 to 15 years to generate such calibration data and prepare the fundament necessary then to look at this complex sum spectra that we get from a comet where many molecules contribute and their fragments. So we had to, we, we could build on this fundaments and try to disentangle these sum spectra. And this is actually what we have been doing for, for this paper now for the first time. We took a data set from a time when, when the comet was close to the sun, so there was a lot of sublimation going on. Also, this would drag dust from the cometary surface to leave the comet and heat up while this dust was on the outbound trajectory, so away from the comet. So these small particles then could heat up to temperatures that were way beyond those they usually experience on the cometary surface. So this actually led to sublimation of also more complex species. This was favorable conditions to actually go into greater details and take the opportunity to really see if there was heavy species too. There was quite many. 
So it took us maybe a year of, of really of data analysis and wow. uh, putting things together. But eventually it was possible to find a likely solution. So a likely disentanglement and identifying many individual molecules that contributed to this coma, to this atmosphere at that very moment. So when the comet was was close to the sun and the conditions were dusty. Quite a feat of detective work. Very much so. <laughs> well, it certainly helps explain why it has taken a good deal of time to be able to make this happen. It looks like Catherine is uh, trying to rejoin us. Uh, Dr. Altveg, can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I'm glad you were able to drop in. Good. We just got a great explanation from Nora uh, of how difficult it was to tease out these chemical compounds from the data that your instrument, uh, Rosina, you must be very pleased with the performance of this uh, of this instrument. Yes, I am. I was very pleased all along since we got the first data. It's really behaving beautifully. I'm really grateful for all the engineers who worked on it. And for a mission that ended six years ago, to see such uh, rich data and conclusions still being delivered by this spacecraft, because of course it was 2016 when it was intentionally crashed into uh, the comet. It truly is a, a great testament to the value of doing this kind of planetary science. I wanna talk a little bit more about what was actually found. Nora, I'll start with you again. Do you have an idea? I mean, have you actually counted how many separate chemical compounds have been detected, I mean, identified as, uh, as part of this work? Yeah, I think Katrin is the more adequate person to respond here because she has been there from the beginning. And I think I will just pass this question to her for now. Go for it, Katrin. I actually lost count by now, but I, at one time I had 72 <laughs> compounds. <laughs> Probably there are more now. Wow. Be because we are still finding new compounds all the time. So I, I have to recount that one time, yes. <laughs> so out of that more than 72 now, uh, I'll be unfair here and ask you to play favorites. Would any of you like to talk about any of the specific compounds. I mean, there were some mentioned in the media release, the press release that I got, uh, which were, were quite interesting. And some of them may be familiar, at least in terms of their characteristics, to we mere earthlings. Well, it started out with the smell of the comet. First, it stank. <laughs> <laughs> By now, it, it smells a little bit better, but still uh, quite a weird mixture of, of compounds if you could smell it. I was going to ask you, if we brought the comet down to Earth, slowly, I hope, what would it smell like? I mean, I guess it would be kind of a, a pretty rich uh, assortment of aromas, right? One of our colleagues uh, made this mixture once, not with all compounds, but, but with the most smelly ones. And I can tell you, it smells horrible. <laughs> We kept those cards in the institute in a in a box, and we would bring them out for like outreach purposes. And people like the, the office mates were complaining about the smell of those cards, so we had to buy like plastic bags to put them in because it really smells pretty bad. <laughs> Mostly like sulfur type of compounds, so like um, eggs that have gone bad and 
horse tables, something like that. We're sort of more the more dominant smells. Uh, what is the chemical that uh, gives mothballs their characteristic smell? Naphthalene. Naphthalene, yes. Turing compound. So that was our first Turing compound. I've heard it described as a chemical zoo. Uh, I, I tend to think of it more as a menagerie. Does that fit your thinking about this? And and were you surprised to find such a vast assortment of, of chemical compounds? Yes, we, we certainly were. The, the, zoo, the zoo was my idea because I'm not the chemist. I, I think Nora can can remember all the structures and compounds I cannot. That's why I had to associate the compounds to animals. I can remember animals, you know, that's much easier. It's really surprising because comets are, are so primitive, pristine, that you think they would contain very small molecules like water and CO2, but not much else. So the surprise was quite uh, big. Susanna, let me ask you, there is, there is a phrase used, shared pre-stellar history. And it seems to establish a connection between what has been found in Comet Turi and what we are finding elsewhere around the solar system, like in the rings of Saturn. Am I on the right track there? Yes, indeed. Uh, that's one of the main conclusions uh, from this work, uh, essentially that all these reservoirs seem to have similar organic compounds. Some of them are actually the same as what we find in, in interstellar environments, meaning other regions where stars are forming or where stars might be forming. And so that's why we think that it points towards a sort of common origin of this material, maybe even from pre-solar times meaning that a part of the material may have been inherited from the phases before the sun started to form. We're talking about four and a half, at least four and a half billion years ago. Indeed. Isn't this one of, I mean, it's one of, there are several holy grails in um, astrophysics, understanding um, the origin of our solar system. But this is one of them, right? I mean, determining what was around as the sun and the worlds that we know today started to form. Doesn't it also give us a clue as to, or take us a little bit closer to understanding how life may have originated here on Earth? And we don't know yet, perhaps elsewhere in the solar system? Yes, it's, this is obviously one of the big questions where the ingredients for life came from and sort of what levels of molecular complexity were reached in, in different stages of star formation, whether already in sort of, we refer to it as the pre-stellar core phase, so when there's just a condensation in a molecular cloud, but not an actual star yet. There seem to be more and more indications that some complex molecules are already formed at that stage. And so that some of it, the material may actually be older than we think. There was also a paper, a different paper that looked at the ratio of the deuterium to hydrogen and whether that could originate in a protoplanetary disk or whether that uh, would also be sort of from pre-solar times. And they concluded that maybe about 50% of the water actually predates uh, the formation of the solar system. And maybe this is now an indication that also some of the organic material may be older than we think. Absolutely fascinating. 
to imagine that much of the water in our solar system actually existing before there was a solar system here. Nora, as the lead for this uh, paper, for these findings, can you give me an idea of where you hope to go from here? Well, I feel the more we go into the details, the more we dig in these data, the more interesting leads we find <laughs> that seem worth pursuing in the next few years. Um, on the one hand, this work now gave us an idea. It sort of demonstrated that it's possible to really disentangle specific data. Species that include oxygen uh, atoms or, or sulfur atoms. And for those, it's more complex to actually disentangle full data sets because certain things are not unambiguous anymore, not even for, for a spectrometer like the Rosina instrument. And these are also actually interesting regarding the origin of life. So because some species that are thought to be to be important sort of during the synthesis of biomolecules like sugar or amino acids, they include exactly these heteroatoms. So this is certainly one thing we, we would like to look at, but also uh, regarding comparative work, we found in the framework of, of uh, this past work now published in, in Nature Communications, that also Cassini, a Cassini instrument, so the INMS instrument on board NASA's Cassini spacecraft, which had unit resolution, actually came to very similar results. So they also looked at what is the organic fraction of the inflowing material, so the material that is flowing in from Saturn's rings into the upper atmosphere of Saturn. What is the organics composed there? And we found that it's pretty similar to our cometary organic material as we see it with uh, Rosina DFMS. There could be a lot of comparative work done and this is actually what I'm planning to do at some point to really try to figure out if what and if we can learn something from the high resolution cometary data if we compare them to the low resolution Cassini data because certainly it's not only about the, the, the solar system so how the solar system evolved but also how did Saturn evolve this, this question is still not fully clear so there is one hypothesis that the ring system of Saturn for instance it evolved while a comet was captured and then sort of fragmented so this is one hypothesis or the rings could be older and formed during the formation of the solar system. And maybe if, if we can figure out details there, extract more information, then maybe we can support or favor one or the other hypothesis. It, this is very fascinating to me. Basically, what can you do with cometary data if you compare it to others, compare it to, as we did, to uh, meteorites, compare it to other uh, solar system bodies? And I think really this high resolution mass spectrometric data is really unique. I mean, there is no, no other such data there and there won't be such data in the next few tens of years to come. Sadly, uh, Catherine, as the, the principal investigator for the Rosina instrument, 
Can you now imagine an instrument that would be even more powerful, be able to tell us more, uh, as, as Nora seems to be hinting at? Comet mission, you mean? Yes. yes. My preferred cometary mission would be uh, landing on a comet, having at least an instrument as good as the FMS, because we should actually mm. study it, the compounds at the comet and then drill drill into the interior of the comet and see what we find. Because we see only the gas which comes out. The real heavy molecules, they probably won't su sublimate. A lander could really drill and look at the interior of the comet. Then I expect even more complex molecules, yes. And sadly, there is no mission like that planned right now. But let's hope that somebody uh, comes up with that as a concept. You know, Rosetta, that's 40 years. So in another 40 years, we talk again. Yes, as long as we often say on this program that anybody who wants to do exploration of the solar system, especially the outer reaches of the solar system, has to be very patient. It is, it is playing the long game. Susanna, I want to come back to you as we get toward the end of our, our conversation here. Because you are now, uh, I learned just before our conversation, the interim director of the Center for Space and Habitability, which Catherine used to lead. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what the CSH is all about, what the mission is at the University of Bern. The Center for Space and Habitability, CSH, is a center of excellence from the University of Bern. The mission is essentially to do interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary research at the sort of boundaries of different research fields. So we have researchers, a lot of researchers working on sort of topics around exoplanets, but then also other things uh, like me, for instance, I'm an astrochemist, but then we also have people working in geosciences and we even have a philosopher of science and we have collaborations with medicine and so on. So the idea is really that we leverage the potential of interdisciplinary research, for instance, in using similar methods in other fields. There have been collaborations now, for instance, with people um, working on data for uh, COVID infections. Um, there are people who use, for instance, polarimetric techniques that are used in astronomy for uh, detection of cancer cells in brain tumors and things like that. And so the idea is really to sort of use this the power of interdisciplinary research essentially to to drive new things and new in the end innovations in a way that that may be useful for different fields not not just uh, astrophysics that is another regular theme expressed on this program the interdisciplinary nature of planetary science catherine is the former director of the csh if you would you like to add anything no i, I think susan was very precise in what the csh has to do. One other point maybe is that we also have to do public outreach. So we work with schools. Mm. We uh, have uh, a telescope on the Gornergrat that's uh, high up in the Alps at 3000 meters. That's a robotic telescope just for schools to interest young people for astronomy, astrophysics and science in general. We also have a lot of visits from kids, but also give a lot of talks to, to the public. As you are doing right now, uh, this is exactly. uh, uh, certainly a, a form of outreach that we greatly appreciate. Let me just ask one other question and bring up 
the University of Bern's very distinguished legacy in planetary science, space exploration. I did not know that Buzz Aldrin, when he and Neil Armstrong arrived <laughs> in 1969, set up an experiment from the University of Bern, even before they put up the American flag, which I have to think was probably a high priority, and that this was a project to catch particles of the solar wind. I just read this morning, before we began this conversation, about a proposal for an improved uh, exoplanet detection technology called Project RACEGO. Just got a two and a half million euro grant. So congratulations to your colleague, uh, Jonas Kuhn, uh, for that. It sounds like you are part of a very, very busy university. Yeah, it has a very long tradition. It really started out with Apollo or even before. We were launching instruments on, on rockets. Then we had Apollo, that was the idea of Professor Johannes Geis. And since then, we, we have worked on many, many missions. I think we were part of, of most of the important missions. And this goes on. You know, you, you need a, a good network, partners from all over the world. We collaborated a lot with Americans, also in Rosina. A big part of the FMS is from the U.S. Yeah. And uh, with this network, we, we really have a very good collaboration. Very, very impressive. It is certainly something to be proud of, this affiliation with the university. But also, I hope that you're taking great pride in this uh, work, Nora, that you led, uh, which has identified this chemical zoo at uh, Comet Churi. I look forward to hearing about the work as it continues, as uh, you continue to delve into the composition of our solar system and the bodies that make it up. And maybe, let's hope, take us closer to understanding how we got here as well, the origin of, of life in, in our solar system. Thank you, all three of you. Thank you. Thank you for invitation and this nice talk. I enjoyed it as well. University of Bern researchers Catherine Altweg, Nora Hani and Suzanne Wampfler are members of the team that continues to tease out the most amazing molecules from the gas surrounding Comet Churi. Bruce will join me right after this special message from John Delancey. Many of you know him as Star Trek's Q. Star Trek has always represented the hope for a better future. I don't think you can have that without pushing boundaries. And in the case of space... That is all that we're doing, is pushing those boundaries and finding out more. Always finding out more. And I think it's really important as a human being, as a society, to be able to do something like that. And this is where we do it. Um, 200, 300 years ago, we did it on sailing ships across the ocean. Space is important to me because it's kind of a metaphor for risk-taking, tremendous rewards, possible rewards. Being more expansive in one's thinking and opening oneself up to the infinite possibilities. Probably the biggest thing that differentiates Star Trek from almost everything else is the community in which you enter. Well, the Planetary Society is that type of a community. If you share, like me, the need to expand into infinite possibilities, as my character does in Star Trek... And as I have said to Picard on more than one occasion, then certainly joining the Planetary Society is a good way to go.
join the Planetary Society. It is time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, the uh, program manager for LightSail as well. And I don't know, he has several other jobs. I've seen him cleaning up the office as well. Uh, it's Bruce Betts. <laughs> People have seen that a lot less than they wish, but uh, <laughs> mostly I just clutter my own office. Uh, how are you doing, Matt? I'm doing well. I continue to get these lovely messages from, well, you folks out there about uh, my my plans uh, remember you know i still have three and a half months before uh, before the big change here before someone else takes this chair the big change <laughs> hmm. <laughs> we're sad let's move out of that and talk happy 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 night sky i got a ton of stuff in the night sky we don't have time to talk about your unfortunateness <laughs> august 11th 12th the moon is near Saturn. Saturn's rising in the east, uh, and the moon is nearby. But let's move forward. Jupiter also, oh, I'm sorry, I'm so excited to go get it. Let me not get ahead of myself. We've got Saturn rising in the early evening. A couple hours later, Jupiter. Hey, I saw Jupiter. It turns out it is still very, very bright over mm. in the east in the evening sky. Mars coming up in the middle of the night, looking reddish. Venus getting tougher and tougher to see, but super bright, low in the east in the pre-dawn. August 12th, 13th, there's a full moon, which normally I wouldn't bother to mention. It's also a super moon, which, frankly, I probably wouldn't mention, but it's it's at a closer part of its ellip elliptical orbit than uh, usual when it's full, so it's a little bigger and brighter, which is kind of a dry. It's great if you study the moon. It's terrible if you study anything else in the sky, including August 12th, 13th, the Perseid meteor shower peaks. I don't know if you noticed, that's the same exact night that the full moon occurs. So the moonlight will wash out the dimmer meteors, but they'll st you'll still be able to see bright ones, particularly from a dark side. Perseids are usually the second best uh, per year, 60 to 100 meteors from a dark site. Again, we're going to lose a lot of those to the full moon. You lose more in light pollution. But, hey, worse that happens is you go stare at the sky and you don't see a bunch of meteors. But maybe you will. <laughs> so uh, it also is a broad peak. So a few days before, a few days after, you can still check out increased meteors. I feel obligated to mention on Saturn's behalf, it is at opposition on August 14th opposite side of the Earth from the sun, will rise around sunset, set around sunrise, as things do when they're at opposition. And the moon's near Jupiter on the 14th and 15th, and then that's good enough. Okay, it's 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 exciting. Stare at the sky, do it. Whew. Okay, on to this week in space history. We had a couple of very significant launches of spacecraft that are still working. 2005. 2005, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Still taking the highest resolution images of the surface and doing uh, mineralogy and all sorts of good stuff. Parker Solar Probe launched four years ago now, and it continues to move gradually move in its orbit and get closer and closer to the sun. MRO, please, please keep working. <laughs> and with that plea, we move on to random space facts. Don't be sad. It's not gone yet. Who's about you, man? <laughs> You're not gone yet. I know. I got it. MRO and me, man. <laughs> Our contest will be what are the similarities between Matt and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter? Uh, I don't have an answer to that, so that's not actually the contest. Let me get to the random space fact. 
24 regions on the surface of Comet churyumov Cherigiminko are named after Egyptian gods, uh, deities, and the like. Actually got a continuation of the Egyptian theme used in the Rosetta, Rosetta Stone, and Philae, the lander, a uh, obelisk that's been used similar to the Rosetta Stone to do translation of hieroglyphs. And then they uh, decided to break the surface into 24 different regions named after uh, Egyptian deities and the like. Well, that was appropriate, considering we just uh, talked to uh, three scientists about uh, the amazing chemical zoo, as they called it, they're finding, they found uh, on uh, Comet Turi 67P. Uh, so thank you for that. You're welcome. I, I'm sorry. It wasn't truly random as things are not. I, I, <laughs> I knew that was happening. They may have even mentioned them for all I know. So I'll give you a bonus detail, which is Ma'at. Ma'at is uh, one of the regions. It's also these, the highest volcano on Venus. Hmm. Wow. Totally unrelated. All right, I asked you what locations on the JPL main campus are on the list of National Historic Landmarks. How do we do, Matt? I'm going to let the Poet Laureate uh, answer this. That's Dave Fairchild in Kansas, our Poet Laureate. I'm afraid it has to be sung to the tune of the Beverly Hillbillies theme. So, Oh, my gosh, I'm so looking forward to this. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. That 25-foot simulator spaces in the name is one of two historic landmarks JPL can claim. Spaceflight <laughs> operations is the other you can see. So have a heapin' helpin' of this cool facility. <laughs> <laughs> Space, that is. Planetary science. Mars yards. Wow. <laughs> that, was, that was brilliant. More important, was he right? <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to keep from laughing too hard to even know, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure, yes. I heard Space Flight Operations Facility, 25-foot space simulator. Those are the two facilities. One is the uh, Mishwell. You'll probably tell us more. Why don't you tell us more, and I'll fill in the details. I don't know much more, except that I think Corey Schroyer is going to be very happy. Corey Schroyer in Missouri a first-time winner for us. He said, yeah, the Space Flight Operations Command Facility, Building 230, and the Space Simulator Facility at Building 150. He added, though, I guess it's worth mentioning, the JPL built the Pioneer Station antenna at the Goldstone Deep Space Communications Complex. But since it's not at the JPL location in the Arroyo in Pasadena, or actually near Pasadena, as you'll hear, it is not part of this week's answer. Or is it? Nope. <laughs> it's actually got other things that muddle it anyway, but I was that's why I was very specific of JPL Main Campus, because, uh, you know, people think I'm sneaky. I was trying to be upfront in a sneaky kind of way. Corey, our winner, congratulations. Corey, you're getting a copy of The Red Planet, a natural history of Mars. Uh, very impressive book. And it's by Simon Morden, Dr. Simon Morden, planetary scientist out of Pegasus Books. Uh, Timothy Myers, who's another citizen of California, he says that uh, both of these things, you know, the whole JPL headquarters, not actually in Pasadena. Well, that's why I always say near Pasadena, because Bruce, it is really where? Uh, Bermuda. No, close. La Cunada Flint Ridge. Thank you. 
It's complicated. They've been fighting over it for a long time. It uses a Pasadena address, nonetheless, as its main address. But yeah, like it's, it's confusing. Uh, Kent Murley in Washington, he wanted to add Building 167, the cafe there known for their two egg BLTs held together with a Mars rover antenna. I don't think that's real. <laughs> it was just while they had spare parts once they used them up. <laughs> I want one of those BLTs, I guess. Well, now I do. Thank <laughs> you very much. Let me just quickly fill in the Space Flight Operations Facility as the uh, basically it's mission control for all the planetary robotic spacecraft flown by the U.S. So that's quite historical. And uh, the 25-foot space simulator, which isn't in metric, but we're going to move past that, uh, was the first large thermal vacuum chamber where you could do testing of a whole assembled spacecraft uh, that was built in the U.S. Others were built, of course, afterwards at various places. Wonderful. Thank you. I, I think we're ready to go on. Here's your question. What spacecraft first lifted off the surface of another world beyond Earth? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Wow. My, my brain, the wheels are turning, but uh, I probably should just pay attention and tell people that you have until the 17th. That's August 17th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this answer. Here's the prize. This is terrific. Uh, we had another copy of Beyond, the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. Yuri Gagarin, of course. It's by Stephen Walker, uh, and it is published by HarperCollins, or their imprint that is simply Harper, that started in 1817. That's what the logo says. Anyway, it is quite a book. It is lavishly illustrated and no less than uh, than Yuri uh, deserved. That's it. Good luck, everybody. All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about Matt dressed up as Jed from the Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, Buddy Epson. I don't know. I think you could do it. Thank you, and good night. You know, Buddy Epson, I knew him. Dude, you're awesome. You knew Barnaby Jones? <laughs> I actually was at his house a couple of times in Newport what? Beach, yes. And I interviewed him once for uh, my college radio show. Yeah, his wife at the time, uh, Nancy Epson, had a community theater group, and I was tricked into being in a couple of her productions. Actually, yeah, was was a couple of times at the house, and Buddy was puttering around, and he was still wearing that floppy hat. No, no, he actually wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've just gone up in my sense of esteem. I mean, I didn't think it could get any higher, but wow. And that's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up, Ye Dogs. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its comet-sniffing members. Let that rich aroma lead you to planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.